Um, if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals there, open it to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to finish off the chapter this morning. Um, I'm just going to read from verse 32 to the end of the chapter. But recall the former days when, sorry, move up a bit. Verse 26, I'll read from. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, remain, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that, you, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay, but the righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time as we look at this passage. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word. Um, we thankful for your word that is living and it's active. It's sharp. It cuts us open. But it heals. Um, Lord, we even thank you for these words that are hard, um, these warnings that are meant to awaken us up. Lord, I pray that that would be the effect of your word today, that you'd waken us up, Lord, and draw us near to you. Um, Spirit, we need you. We need your help. Um, I am not wise enough. I'm not eloquent enough to speak to people's hearts, um, but you can. You enlighten, you awaken, you raise people from the dead. Um, do what only you can do this morning, Lord. Pretty things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, let me just remind you one last time, well, maybe not one last time, but one more time, uh, that this is a letter or a sermon being preached to a group of Jews who have become Christians. Uh, they were Jews nonetheless, but they have embraced Jesus as their Savior. Uh, they have placed their, their trust and their faith in Him, and they've become Christians. And the author is writing to them because they are seriously being tempted to give up on their faith in Jesus. 
to, to turn away from him and to revert back to their old ways. And it's really in today's passage that we see why they are thinking of giving up on their Christian faith. We see it's because they are uh, enduring hardship, sufferings because of their faith in Jesus. And that's the context of the original audience being written to and why they're being written to. Uh, we've reminded you of this context uh, a lot. I think I've maybe reminded you of that every single time I preach through those kind of first 10 chapters. And you may have even thought, a couple times in there, how do you know, how do you know that that's the context? Because you remember in week one, we started by saying how much we don't know about this letter. Well, it's today's text that informs us of the context. Uh, It's today's text that we see they have endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They're being publicly uh, exposed to reproach and affliction. Some of them are being thrown in prison. Chapter 12, we'll see that they're not yet to the point of shedding blood. They're not yet giving their lives for their faith, but that is certainly on the way. We know that from uh, history of Christians in Rome and in other cities uh, at that time. And the writer is, is, is writing to them because he is concerned that because of their hardship that they're suffering, um, the, these afflictions, these brothers and sisters are being tempted to, to give up on their faith and to revert back to their old ways. And so he's writing to plead with them to stay the course, to hold on to their hope and to persevere in the faith. And, and this is why we are studying this, this ancient letter, is because this will absolutely describe your situation in your life at some point. It absolutely will. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. This temptation to give up on the faith in Jesus and to turn to something else. So this message, although it's old, is incredibly important for us. As much as they needed these teachings and these strong warnings, these exhortations and these, these encouragements, you and I do too. Um, so we'll dig in and receive the, the teaching. Um, we, we've seen that how the author has gone about making his case uh, to these people, these Christians, to keep on in the faith is by parading before them the glory of the supremacy of Jesus. He's done that for seven chapters. He went on and on and on about the supremacy of Jesus. That, that this person, he's better than anyone. That there's no one like him. Particularly for these Jews. He tells them the prophets that came before, the angels, Moses himself, Joshua, Aaron. Jesus is superior than any of them. And then in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he shifts his focus from the person of Jesus to the work of Jesus. He's telling them that the work that Jesus has done is better than any that has been done before. What Christ has accomplished on your behalf as a better priest in a better sanctuary, offering a better sacrifice, bringing a better, a much better and lasting blessing, that work that he's accomplished for you, there's no better work. What else can you turn to is his point. And, and we see also through these last chapters some incredible blessings that flow to us through Jesus, that, that we can now in this life have a relationship with God, that we can now, we have now access to him through Christ. We can actually live our lives from this point on to the grave with a clean conscience knowing that our sins have been dealt with, that they've been paid for and they've been put away. We now have, we can experience peace with God and rest in God. What incredible blessings that are on offer in Jesus. 
to be able to live this life knowing that your sins no longer condemn you. You can now know God. You can have intimacy with him. You can draw near to him. What incredible blessings that are available in Jesus. And that really, that kind of summary brings us up to chapter 10, verse 18. And what the author is telling us from chapter 10, verse 19 onwards, is what we are to do in light of all that he's laid out thus far. What are we to do with all this glorious information? In light of the fact that there's nobody like Jesus, that he's better than anyone. In light of all that he's accomplished for us, in light of all the blessings that are available and now flow to us because of his work, what are we to do? How are we to live? And the author, he, he tells us how we are to live. Um, Andrew looked at that last, year, last week in that section, verses 19 to 25. And I'm not going to go and preach that again. Um, I'm going to read it one more time. Even though Alan did, it's just such a glorious picture. This is what we, in light of all that we've been taught about who Jesus is and what he has done, this is what we are to do. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, or because of all I've taught you, brothers and sisters. And then he goes on to, to give us the highlights of his teaching again. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he has opened us uh, through the cross, uh, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a high priest over the house of God, what are we yet to do? In verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a, full, with a true heart and full assurance of the faith. Let us draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let me read that verse again, because that's his thesis of the book, isn't it? Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, here's this idea that your perseverance is not just uh, something that you can conjure up. Your perseverance is found in God, and your perseverance is a community project. You, you need your brothers and sisters in order to hold fast to your hope. She so says, don't neglect to meet together. He's not talking about, hey, don't just forget to come to church on Sundays. Don't forget the, the fellowship. Are your lives intertwined so that you can stir one another up, so that you can encourage one another? He's saying, here we are in the night, but the day is drawing near. And every day brings us nearer to that day. He's talking about Christ's return. And so our time now should be spent, our lives should look like lives that are spent confidently drawing near to God in prayer, regularly enjoying fellowship with fellow believers, stirring one another up, encouraging one another in order that we may hold on to our hope and persevere in faith until the day. That's that first section. That's how we are to live. And then let's look at verses 26 to the end of the chapter. Um, this is a difficult passage. Uh, it's here that we get the fourth of those five warnings found in Hebrews. And they're not, they're hard warnings. They're, they're not easy to, to hear, um, but they're important. Uh, if you remember back to the, the, the last warning that we looked at in chapter 6, 
Um, this admonishment in chapter 10, it follows a similar pattern. So in chapter 6, you had that stern warning, chapter 6, verse 4, but he, the author then follows with a softening of that warning by reminding them of their past faithfulness. Remember when he said, though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure better things. And then he adds that encouragement at the end to seriously, uh, to consider seriously the promises of God. And, and this warning or admonishment in chapter 10 follows that same pattern. You have a severe warning, verses 26 to 31. He then balances out that harsh warning with a gentle reminder of their past endurance in the face of suffering. And then he ends by calling this struggling community back to a life lived in light of Christ's return. And um, here's what the author wants to, to, to get across. He's trying to show us two things. Firstly, he'll show us where the road backwards leads, and then he'll show us where the road forwards leads. Where the road backwards leads and where the road forwards leads. This is a community that is enduring hardship and is therefore tempted to, to give up, to turn their back and go backwards. The author says, I'll show you where the road backwards leads. And then that's the strong warning. And then he'll have an encouragement and show where the road forwards leads. Let's look at verses 26 to 31, where he shows where the road backwards leads. This is the warning. Verse 26. For, we, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What's he saying here? Um, he, he's talking about those who have received the knowledge of the truth, those who understand this message of grace and have possibly even lived for a time in light of that truth, but have then turned and go on sinning deliberately. And he says, for those people, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What is he saying? What is he not saying? It's important because we can easily misunderstand who he's talking about here. Um, is he talking about a Christian who stumbles and sins after their conversion? And, and therefore, for them, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Or possibly that they need to perform some act of penance in order to recover their full spiritual health by doing something more in order to amend for their sins. That's not what he's saying here. This, this, this sinning deliberately... Uh, the Old Testament calls this sinning with a high hand. Um, the Old Testament uses that phrase. You can go read about it in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30 uh, this week. It's this deliberate, willful sinning for which there's no atonement provided for in the Old Testament. He's not saying you have to be perfect after your conversion, that you can never sin, even sins that you, you know you shouldn't be committing, but you do anyways. He's not talking about that. That, that's not the deliberate sinning he's talking about here because Paul talks about that struggle. The, the apostle, remember in Romans 7, he, he talks about this inner war that rages within himself, that, that he still doesn't do what he knows he should do, and, and he does do what he knows he shouldn't do. So the author's not talking about that here. The, the other reason we know he's not talking about those who continue to sin after their conversion is because of what he's told us about Jesus and who he is as our high priest for chapters and chapters and chapters already. He's told us that Jesus is a sympathetic 
He's an understanding high priest. He's incredibly tender towards us when we fail. Chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus is a merciful and a faithful high priest. He's able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, we're told he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he urges us to then draw, confidently draw near to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to, uh, to help in time of need. Verse 5, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. So he's already, he's already made it plain and clear that we have a tender, sympathetic, and a merciful high priest in Jesus. One who understands our plight. And he's always ready to, 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 for us to, he's always ready to receive us when we come to him with our weakness and with our waywardness. He's always ready to show mercy and help us. That's who Jesus is. That there's always mercy in Christ for those who go to Christ. There's always help there. So the author, he's not talking about those who understand their weaknesses and their failures and their inabilities and their their deep need of Jesus and therefore continue to turn to him for help. We call that repentance. That's that's what it means to be a Christian, to, to turn to Jesus. He's talking not about that, but rather about the unrepentant. Those who have received the knowledge of truth, who understand that message of grace and yet turn away from him and reject him, willfully reject the cross, trample on the Son of God. He's talking about deserting the living God. The author's already given us uh, an example of that back in uh, chapter 3. Remember the the wilderness wanderers, those who experienced the grace and the goodness and the care of God as he brought them out of Egypt and he led them through the wilderness. But in the end, what did they do? They turned their back on him. They, they, They rejected him. They went astray in their hearts and they deliberately turned back. Let's pack it in and go back to Egypt. That's who he's talking about here. Those who reject the work of Christ. To have received the knowledge of the truth and then to reject it is to give up the only way of salvation. Which is why he says there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's saying there's no other sacrifice to turn to. There's, there's literally no other way. What are you going back to? What are you turning to? Christ is the only sufficient and lasting sacrifice. You've received the knowledge of truth. To reject it is to give up on the only way to salvation. So to turn away from the cross, to give up on your faith in Jesus, to go back, well, where does that road lead? And he tells us in verse 27... Verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He goes on, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. 
And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a stern warning, isn't it? He's not mincing his words, is he? He couldn't be any more serious here. So he's putting forth as strong a warning as possible. To, To put it real simply, he's saying there's no way to peace with God except through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And outside of peace with God through the cross of Jesus, there only remains a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume his enemies. He's making it really clear there's only two options, really. Either be a friend of God through Jesus Christ or be treated as his enemy. And he underlines that in verse 28 by using another one of his lesser to greater arguments. This seems to be his favorite kind of literary tool when he he wants to make an important point in his sermon. He makes the same argument back in chapter 2, verse 2, so it should sound familiar. He's comparing the punishment of rejecting God under the old and the new covenant. And he says in verse 28 here that that under the old covenant, the deserved punishment for rejecting the law of Moses is death without mercy. And in verse 29, he says, how much worse will the punishment be for rejecting Christ? Not the law of Moses, but the Son of God himself, to trample on him, to reject his blood as poured out as, to reject his blood poured out for you as something that is unclean and impure, to insult the spirit of grace. See that lesser to greater? He's saying, if it was serious to reject The old law, how much more serious is it to reject God's Son? If it was serious to reject the old covenant, how much more serious is it to reject the blood-bought covenant? If it was serious to reject the letter, how much more serious is it to reject the Spirit? If the penalty under the old covenant was physical death, how much worse is the spiritual death which lies in store for the apostate under the new covenant? And in verse 30 30 and 31, he's simply reiterating the sin for apostasy. Apostasy is is rejecting Christ, turning away from him in unrepentant sin. (laughs) He says there no longer remains a sacrifice for those sins. He said that in verse 26. And, And without that sacrifice for your sins, all that's left is the vengeance of God. You're guilty of those sins, and all that's left is the prospect of falling into the hands of the living God. And and unlike the sweetness of drawing near to Him through the blood of Jesus, it's actually a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy God, unpardoned and despising Him. This is when we start to feel uncomfortable, isn't it? We, we love talking about the love of God. We love talking about His kindness and His mercy. We love talking about His grace. We don't like talking about divine wrath and anger. But it's important, church. It's incredibly important. It's who God is. It, it, it's, it's part of what makes God's goodness so good. His grace so amazing. I think one of the reasons we have a hard time understanding God as wrathful 
and we, then we misunderstand what it means is because we, we experience wrath with each other in a sinful way, don't we? For we experience wrath from imperfect parents, like my kids experience wrath from me most of the time. Uh, but God's wrath is part of his goodness. Sam Storms explains it well. So I'm just going to relay what he says. He says, divine wrath is not to be thought of as a celestial bad temper or God lashing out at those who rub him in the wrong way. It's not him losing his temper or an irrational outburst of anger. That describes the sinful part of my (laughs) wrath as a father. My kids being too loud. My kids annoying me when I'm having a bad day, so I lash out in anger. That's not how we're to understand God's anger, because his is a righteous anger. Storm says it's actually more helpful to speak of divine wrath as a function of divine love. Divine wrath as a function of divine love, because God's wrath is his love for holiness and truth and justice. That's something we all long for in this world, isn't it? That's what the world longs for, is is truth and justice to be carried out. We want those things, perfection, peace, holiness. And and the reason you you long for those things is because you were created in God's image. You were created to live in and love those things, created to love what God loves. And so it's helpful to understand God's wrath as his love for those things as well. It's because God so passionately loves peace and purity and justice and truth that he reacts angrily towards anything and anyone who defiles those. J.I. Packer uh, explains it really well in his book, Knowing God. He asked this question, would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not act adversely to evil in his, in, the, in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. So we want God to do away with evil in this world, don't we? We want God to be just and to usher in peace and perfection by ridding the world of all that is evil. The problem is when we're a part of the problem. We want God to wipe out all that is sinful in this world, but that would mean wiping us out as, as well. But this is when we begin to understand the magnitude of his grace. You see, when we belittle God's wrath, we cheapen his grace. Storms explains it this way. He says, if you and I do not deserve to suffer divine wrath for our sins, well, we empty God's forgiveness of all its meaning. If there's no such thing as judgment, well, God ought to overlook our sins. That's what we deserve for our sins to be overlooked. Forgiveness is real and meaningful only when we believe that our sin has put us in a situation where we deserve to have God's judgment. We deserve to have God inflict upon us the most serious consequences for our unbelief and immoral behavior. Listen to this line. When a situation demands that God should take action against sinful people in judgment, and instead he takes action for them, 
the word grace actually means something. Let me say that again. When a situation demands that God should take action against sinful people in judgment, and instead he takes action for them, the word grace actually means something. But if there is no such thing as judgment of God's wrath for sin and unbelief, grace loses all its meaning and significance. Do you know who God is? The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that should absolutely astound you when you are aware of the punishment that we actually deserve. When we are aware of the wrath that we do deserve, that evil does deserve, it should astound us that he is merciful and gracious, that he's actually slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. That, that costly, amazing grace should make us fall on our knees and worship every single day. The author is saying, beloved, don't forget that. Don't, don't, you, rem- don't you realize what you have in Jesus? Why would you ever your, consider turning your back on him? You see, that stern warning seems really harsh at first, doesn't it? But, but when you realize the magnitude of grace, you realize that stern, harsh warning is actually given out of love and concern for the souls of his brothers and sisters. That's out of love that he's saying, this is where the road backwards leads. And the last section in the chapter, verses 32 to 39, he gives his word of encouragement by telling us where the, where the way forward leads. So just like the harsh warning in chapter 6, uh, this one is also followed by words of reassurance and encouragement. And, and why does he do that? Because again, his aim is not to discourage, but to embolden. His aim is not to, to have them shaking in fear, but to, but to have confidence and, and perseverance. Let me read uh, from verse 32. But recall the former days. He's saying, remember back to those earlier days after you were enlightened. It's a beautiful word. After you were illuminated, after the lights went on, when you understood the magnitude of God's grace and his love towards you. Recall those days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he's asking in verse 34, how was it that you put up with all of that? All that you went through, the affliction, the public reproach, the scorn, the trials, the loss of your property. How was it that you put up with all of that? In verse 34, he says, well, it's because you were convinced that whatever you lost on earth, whatever happened to you on earth, you had a better possession and an enduring possession in heaven which could not be taken away from you. He's saying that that's that's what kept you going as you endured such a difficult life. You knew you were going to heaven. (laughs) That's that's where the road forward leads. Verse 35, he says, Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. 
which has a great reward, don't give up. Cling to your faith in Jesus, which leads to such a glorious destination and outcome. Such a, such a great reward. Seems like such a, maybe kind of an old school gospel hall thing to say, but we need to remind each other that we're going to heaven. We have a future of glory forever in the presence of King Jesus. What a reward. What a future destination. And so in verse 36, he, he says, what you need is, is not something better, which you foolishly believe you can find if you go back to that old way. What you need is endurance. That word literally means perseverance, or it means a word that we don't really love, patience. And I'm afraid we desperately need verse 36 in our modern context. So many of us modern Christians think that what we really need is something different. What we really need is something extra, something special. You believe that's what you really need, but it isn't. The author of Hebrews says, your great need is stickability. You need patient endurance. You need stickability. You need perseverance. You need the ability to simply keep going. Because if you keep going when you've done God's will and stuck at what God wants, no matter what comes your way, you will enter at last into what is promised. He's saying your, your ruling desire shouldn't be a desire to, to go back to an easier way. Your ruling desire shouldn't be to have an experience which makes things easier for you. Your ruling desire should, do, should, to be, to, should be to do what God wants. And if you stick plodding away on that right path, which Jesus himself said is not an easy path, but he will help you along the way, then the reward at the end of that road will be great. And in verse 37, he says, you haven't got long to wait. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul takes no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love this bit. He's ending with this exhortation to press on, to persevere with confidence. Why? Because the coming one will soon come. Who's the coming one? Jesus. This reminded me, this is... This is what John the Baptist asked Jesus when he was in prison and he was about to be beheaded. Talk about hardship. He's on death row and he sends messengers back to Jesus and he says, ask him, are you the one who has come or should we look for another? John knows that if Jesus is the coming one, the suffering will be worth it. If he's not the coming one, it's not worth it. But if he is, he's ready to endure anything. And that's the message here. And in that situation, Jesus, he goes on and he proves who he is. And he says, go back and tell him what you've seen me do. And in that moment, he heals the sick, casts out demons, restores sight to the blind, and obviously goes on to, to be killed and to raise from the dead and to, raise, and, to, and to ascend to heaven. Jesus is the one to come and who will come again. And John knew that if Jesus was the Christ, it was all worth it. And in verse 38, he gives, he gives them, let me reiterate my main point again, that the righteous are the ones who live by faith. 
They are the ones who persevere and cling to Jesus. The other option is to shrink back. He's making it crystal clear. Here's the decision. These are the two roads you can travel. The route of faith and be rewarded by the Lord at his coming or to shrink back and face the Lord's displeasure and destruction. But, but he ends again with this confident, confident assertion that, that he and the community, so notice the, the, the we language in verse 39 again. He's saying, this is us. I'm with you in this. This is the, the coach in the locker room at halftime urging his team that we belong to those who have chosen the former path. We, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. He's saying, I believe you will press on because I've seen you do it in the past. I've seen your, your endurance in the face of trials before. I believe you will continue on in the same way. What, what emboldening of their, of their hope, of their faith, of their confidence. Let me just say what I said at the beginning, that their context of facing hardship public reproach, affliction, and therefore being tempted to to shrink back, to to turn their back on Jesus, you will absolutely find yourself in that situation in your lifetime. Many times in your lifetime. You will be faced with the decision of either turning your back on Jesus, shrinking back, or pressing on with patient endurance to the reward ahead. But, but here's the thing is you need to decide now. You, you, you need to decide now because it'll probably be too late when the pressures come. Decide now that it's worth the public reproach because the possession waiting for you in heaven is a better and abiding one, one that can't be taken away. Decide now that you it will endure with patient endurance and confidence. And so you might be thinking, yes, I I do want to decide that, but how? I know how weak I am. I know how I give in to pressures. How do I do that? Well, the good thing is he's already told us how to do that. Andrew covered that last week. Verses 19 to 25, the author says, this is what you are to do. This is how you are to live in light of all I've been teaching you. And he's told us to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Draw near to God. Abide in him in prayer. Be in his word. Don't neglect to be together. Gather with your fellow believers. Stir one another up. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near when the coming one will come. You want to know how to hold fast without wavering? Be with Jesus and his people. Abide with the Lord daily. This is uh, the Apostle John's teaching as well. In 1 John uh, 2, 28, he uses, he's, he's saying, he's giving the exact same message to, to his, uh, what he calls his little children, his, 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 the ones he loves. This is, he uses the exact same language as the author of Hebrews does in Hebrews 10. And John says, and now little children, abide in him. Why? Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
saying the exact same thing. How, how do we hold fast without wavering? Abide in him and he will abide in you. Draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. <laughs> He's the faithful one. He will be the one who will, who will give you endurance, who will give you patience and perseverance in the face of suffering. Turn to him. Don't you see all these writers are saying your success is not found somewhere inside of you. It's found nowhere but in Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Go to him, turn to him, and he will keep you until the end. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the band to come up and we'll praise the Lord for what he's taught us. Uh, so again, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is hard to hear, that does slice us open at times. But I thank you, Lord, that you are the healer, that we can come to you to find mercy and grace in our need. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, may we be aware of all of the ways you show your kindness to us and you calling us in love. Thank you, Lord, that you always welcome us in when we come to you, that you never turn us away. Lord, I pray for those who are enduring those hardships. We may not be spilling blood. We may not be being thrown in prison but we do experience that public reproach. We do experience hardship in our ways, pressures, family pressures, pressures from friends, maybe even a loss of moving up in our jobs. Lord, I pray for those who are enduring hardship that they would turn to you, Lord, that they would know what they have in you, Jesus. A better possession and an enduring one. A future that cannot be taken away if we persevere to the end. So Lord, help us not to shrink back. Help us to draw near to you, Lord. Help us to come to you in prayer, to consume your words, to be with your people, to, to speak those words of encouragement and exhortations so that we can continue on without wavering. Lord, help us to see just the importance of that. May this message of speaking of your wrath shake us again, Lord, and, and, and make us realize just how immense your grace is. Just the love that you've extended to us when we haven't deserved it. But may we turn to you, Lord. I pray for those who maybe have never done that before. Lord, enlighten them. Um, may that light go on in their, in their heart of who you are for them, what you've done for them. And all we have to do is come to you in faith and say thank you.
Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. Pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen.